Sarswiti. Hello there. Welcome to City Break St. Petersburg, episode six, which I'm calling The Palace Embankment, and where we're going to think about all the watery aspects of the city of St. Petersburg. So the River Neva itself, a little bit about the huge plethora of canals and bridges that crisscross the city, and then a walk up the Palace Embankment from St. Isaac's Cathedral, past some of St. Petersburg's best-known buildings, things like the Statue of Peter, of course, and then the Admiralty and the Winter Palace, and finishing up at the Summer Palace. A lovely thing to do on perhaps one of your first mornings in the city. Certainly you could do all of that in the morning if you're just walking past, looking from the outside. If you want to go in, you could take several days over it, really. You could spend a whole day in the Winter Palace for a kick-off. Anyway, back to the watery elements. So I'm going to start with the Neva, the river on which the city is built, the Neva Delta, consisting of up to actually about a thousand islands and where the river itself splits round about the city of St. Petersburg. And you'll see on the map two Nevas marked the Bolshkaya Neva, which means the great river, the bigger half, and the Malaya Neva, the smaller one. The river itself, for all that it's very well known to anybody who knows St. Petersburg, is actually not a very long river at all. It's only 70 plus kilometres, connecting Lake Ladoga, north of the city, down to the Baltic Sea. And this, of course, gave St. Petersburg a great strategic influence. No doubt that's why Peter chose exactly this spot to build his city. And uh, so when you look at the river, you can think of it as somewhere where the Russians have fought off various other nationalities, Swedes and Finns and Balts and various people over the centuries. I think anybody who's been to St. Petersburg will remember it as a city of canals and bridges, and it certainly has masses of both. There are thought to be about 300 kilometres in total of canals running through the city and over 800 bridges. So where to start? I think perhaps the most famous canal is the one called the Fontanka, which is actually the Russian word for fountains. This canal was built originally to feed the fountains in the summer garden, where we'll be ending our walk later in the episode. In the 18th century, so the first century that the city was built, it represented the southern boundary of the city. And that's why, in fact, if you walk along it, you'll see many fine and famous buildings. It's a lovely thing to do. I think you can walk all the way along. You can certainly go along it in a boat and you'll see en route all kinds of fantastic palaces. To mention just two or three, the Shuvalov Palace, the Sheremetev Palace, the Yusupov Palace, we'll be coming back to that one a bit later, and also other buildings that you may not get round to visiting, but which are just glorious, a glorious sight on the canal. Things like the St Nicholas's Cathedral, a lovely shimmering blue and white building with its Baroque spires and its golden domes. I didn't make it inside, but it's fixed in my memory as one of the most beautiful buildings I think I saw in the whole city. Another canal that's very well known is called the, if I can get the pronunciation correct, Zimnyeya Kanavka, which I believe means Winter Canal, and which is deemed to be perhaps the most romantic canal in the whole city. It connects the Neva to just close to the Winter Palace of the Hermitage, and it has some of the loveliest buildings in the city on both sides of it. Coming on to the bridges, 800 plus, don't intend to mention more than one or two. One of the bridges I do remember is called the Staro-Nikolsky Most. Most, by the way, is the Russian for bridge. So that one, you can tell from the name Nikolsky, is right by St Nicholas's Cathedral. And the reason I noted that bridge particularly is because I read in a guidebook that when you stand on it, you can see seven other bridges, and that's a record for the city. 
Another bridge that sticks in the mind because of where it's placed, you seem to keep coming across it, and that's the Anchikov Bridge, which is where the Fontanka meets Nevsky Prospect and where you'll find rearing horses, statues of, of course, on all four corners. And if you're into record-breaking, then you need to search out the Obvodny Canal, which has 24 bridges along it, said to be the most on any canal in the city. I think rather than trying to remember all the names of canals and bridges, it's nice to just stroll about over one, across another. I picture doing that in the summer because I went in the summer, but I know that also in the winter they're very picturesque, frozen over completely, of course, for months on end. And I find a nice little extract describing that, written in 1957 in a book called The Muses Are Heard, written by Truman Capote, who went to St Petersburg on a cultural exchange midwinter and came upon a scene which he described thus, quote, The canal, no more than a snowy ditch, was a sporting ground for children, whose laughing shrillness, combined with a ringing of bells, both sounds carrying on the strong, shivery winds that blow from the Bay of Finland. The canals definitely contribute to the romantic air of the city, but of course we mustn't forget that all this water has caused massive problems many times, There have been major floods frequently, certainly every century, years like 1777, 1824, 1924, all remembered for the terrible floods that caused such damage. And from the one of 1824, which I think might have been the worst of the lot, I found a description written by Robert Lee from his book The Last Days of Alexander and the First Days of Nicholas. So he's describing the flood that took over the city in 1824 talking about water gushing up through the gratings of the sewers, how the streets and courtyards were full of water, and you could hear terrible cries all around as people were drowning and watching their houses disappearing. He writes, for example, quote, Now and then a horse was seen swimming across from one pavement to another, the deepest part of the streets of St Petersburg being in the centre. The number of rats drowned on this occasion was inconceivable, and of dogs and cats, not a few. It describes how the water was at different depths in different parts of the city, worst, of course, nearest the Neva, where he thought it was possibly up to 18 feet deep, and he describes small wooden houses built on piles being carried away, as he puts it, quote, inmates and all. Here's part of his description. A few houses floated up the Neva, rocking about with poor creatures clinging on the roof. Some of these perished, Others were taken off at great risk by boats from the Admiralty Yard, which had been ordered out by the express command of His Imperial Majesty, who stood during the greatest part of the day on the balcony of the Winter Palace, giving the necessary orders. He goes on to estimate that some twelve or fifteen hundred people perished during the actual flooding, but to point out that, of course, in the winter following that, because of the damp and the terrible state of most of the houses, mortality was nearly doubled. People were dying of typhus and infections of the lungs. But he's at pains to underline the emperor trying to help his people at the time, writing, for example, The Emperor Alexander, ever benevolent and humane, visited those parts of the city and suburbs most afflicted by this catastrophe, and in person bestowed alms and consolation to the sufferers for the most part of the lower classes, and in every way afforded such relief, both then and afterwards, as won for him the still greater love and admiration of his people and of the foreign residents in St. Petersburg. As far back as the time of Peter the Great, so just after the city was founded, there was a ceremony designed to underline the importance of water to the city, called, in fact, the Blessing of the Waters. 
and it was held in the spring just as the ice was melting to sort of celebrate the idea that all the river and the canals were going to be opened up and people could take to boats again. And they would start the day with a church service, give thanks for the melting of the ice and the opening up of the boating lanes. Water would be scooped out and blessed and sent to the Winter Palace as a gift to the Emperor. By the end of the 18th century, it had become a religious tradition to hold a ceremony on the Day of Epiphany, so January the 6th, in which the ice would be broken and people would be baptised in the water of the river. We've got an eyewitness account of that from 1792 from a book called A Tour of Russia, Siberia and the Crimea, written by John Parkinson. He describes a church service and then a procession from the church down to the canal, complete with ladder, and somebody would just lower a ladder down and cut a hole in the ice and the archbishop would go down the ladder with the child that he was going to baptise and sprinkle water over them. This would be watched by a great crowd of people who'd gathered. I think a lot of babies were baptised all at once. It wasn't just one. And John Parkinson describes people who were, quote, crossing themselves and expressing a great deal of devotion. The water, of course, had been blessed, and this meant that a lot of people were anxious to make the most of it. So a little bit later on in his description, he writes the following. I was much amused to see the anxiety with which the people were procuring water in jugs and bottles. Some were drinking others washing their faces, and one man had dipped his whole head in and drenched his locks most completely. As the procession returned, several persons were employed in sprinkling the holy water over the crowd on each side. And he gives us a colourful description of the priests as well on this day. Quote, the priests wore gaudy vestments by which they were distinguishable, as well as by their beards and their hair floating at great length down their shoulders. And there's a different account of a similar ceremony written by someone called Jacques Casanova in his memoirs of A Visit to Russia, when he writes the following. After the benediction of the waters, children were baptised by being plunged into a large hole which had been made in the ice. On the day on which I was present, the priest happened to let one of the children slip through his hands. Drugoi, he cried, that is, give me another. My surprise may be imagined when I saw that the father and mother of the child were in an ecstasy of joy. They were certain that the babe had been carried straight to heaven. Happy ignorance. Goodness. One of the other very strange episodes which took place on the River Neva was during the time of the Empress Anna, when one Prince Golitsyn was getting married. Empress Anna was somehow in charge of the celebrations and decided that she wanted to make a big spectacle of it. And so, because it was in winter and the river was completely frozen over, she would have an ice palace built to host the celebrations. So far, so sensible. But the amount of detail which went into carrying out her instructions is quite amazing. So a palace was built, walls and steps and balustrades and columns and all the rest of it, all out of ice, on the ice of the river. Furniture was put inside, that too was made of ice, including the four-poster bridal bed, all the chairs, the chandeliers, the whole lot. A pair of cannons made of ice, which actually fired real cannonballs. Actually, I don't know if that's true, perhaps they were made of ice as well. Anyway, they really fired. Then there were decorations, a pair of dolphins here, a life-size model of an elephant there, that sort of thing. As an eyewitness wrote, quote, everything had been done to excite the eye and astonish the imagination, and all at a cost of only 30,000 roubles. Unless you're wondering what they actually did with this palace, I think there were hog roasts and all sorts going on before the end of the evening, but the bridal couple actually were made to sleep inside on the bed of ice. 
and the next morning they were apparently spotted emerging from the ice palace, still hale and hearty. And we do know that, in fact, inside there had been a stove set up. So presumably, although it looked very chilly, perhaps it wasn't too bad. Surely a wedding night that you would never forget. OK, so, so much for general information about the river and the canals. Let's start our walk up the palace embankment. So I'd like to start actually at St Isaac's Cathedral. And then we're going to wander up the embankment past the Winter Palace to the Summer Palace. So, St Isaac's, the cathedral in a city of so many cathedrals, which possibly is really the symbol of the city. It dates from the 1700s, although the one we're looking at today had undergone a major rebuild in the 19th century, during which century two French visitors wrote about it in the following terms. The first one is Théophile Gautier, who wrote, quote, When the traveller has proceeded up the Gulf of Finland near St. Petersburg, the first object upon which his glance rests is the dome of St. Isaac's, placed upon the skyline of the city like a golden mitre. I think that's it. You do see that golden dome from so many places in the city that it has become quite a symbol. Alexandre Dumas also wrote about the architect, saying that he, quote, made the cathedral rise above the earth to soar into the sky. There were references to it in fiction as well. So in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, for example, the main character, Raskolnikov, is out walking one evening, as he's wont to do, and there's a description of him stopping on Annunciation Bridge and gazing across the Neva at the Cathedral of St Isaac's. Quote, The cupola of the cathedral, which is seen at its best from the bridge about 20 paces from the chapel, glittered in the sunlight and in the pure air on it every ornament could be clearly distinguished. The building of St Isaac's started in 1706, so very early on in Peter's construction of the city, and although there were four cathedrals in St Petersburg, even in those early days, I think there's an argument to say that maybe St Isaac's was the one most closely associated with him, possibly even his favourite. Peter was born on the 30th of May, which is the name day of St Isaac, and Peter decreed that that should be the name of this cathedral. So right from the beginning, he was associating himself with it. A few years later, in 1712, his own wedding took place there when he married Catherine. It was exactly here that they tied the knot. And a bit later again, he gave the order out that all ranks of the Admiralty should take their oaths here in this cathedral, or rather in the one that was standing when he was reigning. As I mentioned, the current version dates from the 19th century, the rebuild began in 1818, didn't finish until about 40 years later, 1859 in fact. And by that stage what they'd done was constructed really one of the very biggest domes in the world. You could go to Rome or St Paul's in London or Florence Cathedral to see something bigger, but that's about it really, St Isaac's comes next. And it had certainly been a massive, massive project in true St Petersburg style Thousands of workers were employed. It's estimated, in fact, that something like 500,000 people worked on the construction. Stonecutters and carpenters and smiths, sculptors, painters, and that hundreds were killed during its construction, mainly by falling masonry. But eventually, 1858, it was duly finished, it was consecrated, and declared to be the main cathedral of the Russian Orthodox Church. All that fantastic design and planning had come together. The 14 types of marble, the 600 square metres of mosaic, the 400 kilograms of gold. There's actually 100 kilograms just on the dome. 
a thousand kilograms of bronze, really, really, absolutely no expense was spared. It's said that the architect, one Frenchman, Auguste Montferrand, had asked that all he wanted as payment was to be buried here in the cathedral. But it's interesting to note that the emperor at the time, Nicholas I, refused this request, saying that he was only an artisan. So burial in places like that was reserved for people a bit higher up the social scale, I fear. To get a flavour of what the church was like when it was first rebuilt, going to go to an eyewitness account from the 1870s of an actual Easter service that was held there. It's from a book called Vanished Pomps of Yesterday, written by Lord Frederick Hamilton and quoted in The Traveller's Reader. And he describes going to Midnight Mass at St Isaac's on Easter Day, arriving about half an hour before midnight and finding the church absolutely packed and also in almost total darkness. Right inside, under the dome, there was a catafalque with a gilt coffin on it, on which was painted an effigy of the dead Christ. And in the half hour or so before the service, before midnight, tens of thousands of candles were lit, gradually working right round the building, lighting it up. And here's how he describes the service. Quote, Black-robed priests were chanting the mournful Russian office for the dead. At about twenty minutes to twelve, the blind was drawn over the dead Christ, and the priests, feigning surprise, advanced to the rails of the iconostas and announced to an archimandrite that the coffin was empty. The archimandrite ordered them to search round the church, and the priests perambulated the church with gilt lanterns, during which time the catafalque, beer, and its accessories were all removed. The priests announced to the Archimandrite that their search had been unsuccessful, whereupon he ordered them to make a further search outside the church. They went out and so timed their return as to arrive before the Iconostas at three minutes before midnight. They again reported that they had been unsuccessful. When, as the first stroke of midnight pealed from the great clock, the Metropolitan of Petrograd announced in a loud voice, Christ is risen. And he goes on to describe how the clergy then appeared dressed in gold and the choir burst out into Russian Easter anthems and the Easter Mass began. Lord Hamilton obviously attended this service more than once because he writes then also from the plaintive dirges of the funeral service to the jubilant strains of the Easter Mass, from the darkness of the tomb to the glories of the resurrection, I never tired of witnessing this splendid piece of symbolism. Another very memorable service held at St Isaac's was the funeral service for seven of the Cossacks killed in the February Revolution in 1917. So they had died trying to hold back unrest on the streets and were duly buried with great respect and ceremony because they had been trying to uphold the imperial rule, despite the fact that all around them revolutionaries were trying to overthrow said imperial rule. There's a very nice description of this in the book by Helen Rappaport called Court in the Revolution, in which she describes the coffins of the Cossack soldiers being brought to the cathedral, covered with silver cloth and surrounded by a Cossack guard of honour, all carrying black pennants on their lances. The coffins lay there overnight so that thousands of mourners could stream through the cathedral and pay their respects, and the next day there was a long elaborate funeral service, the full Russian Orthodox version, gleaming icons, crosses, incense, 200 choir boys, what one eyewitness described as a triumphant symphony of grief, and then the, the coffins and the funeral procession left the cathedral again and came outside where a vast crowd had gathered. Many of them were weeping, many were carrying black mourning flags, 
and the procession then went back up the Nevsky Prospect, right the way to the Alexander Nevsky Monastery at the far end, where the burials were to take place. Helen Rappaport tells us that there were family there, some of the parents of the Cossack soldiers who were being buried, who had come to see their sons buried with such dignity. And she writes, They were simple peasants from as far away as the Urals or the Caucasus, who had come all this way to follow their sons' coffins. In Cossack tradition, the dead men's riderless horses followed the cortege, with stirrups crossed over the empty saddles. One of the horses had been seriously injured, and was limping pitifully behind its master's coffin. On another horse, the dead man's son, a little Cossack of about ten years old, had been put up into the saddle. So you can think of St Isaac's as really a centre for Russian Orthodox tradition, and for some of the most momentous occasions in Russian history, imperial weddings such as Peter's, the state mustering all it could to send people who had martyred themselves for the emperor off in real style. And so it's interesting to note, of course, that in the Soviet period, all of this disappeared. The cathedral became, quote, an anti-religious museum. And during this period, there was a visitor called Margaret Lamont who wrote of how very much things had changed. Now everyone, she wrote, walks through without bothering to take off his hat, studying the exhibits which mock the former religious life in this very cathedral. But of course that too didn't last forever and in 1990 Holy Liturgy was performed once again in St Isaac's Cathedral. Gradually religion found its way back to the building and in 2005 an agreement was signed on something called Mutual Activities between the Museum of the Cathedral, so the people who had been in charge of it in all the time when religion wasn't really permitted, and the church authorities who were gradually getting their building back. It's been restored since then and today is a working cathedral as well, of course, as a tourist site. If you come out of St Isaac's to walk up the embankment, you'll probably come past the statue of Peter the Great, which I've mentioned already in a previous episode, the one built from one single block of granite, hauled from the Gulf of Finland, and erected in 1782, with the inscription, To Peter from Catherine. So, from one of Russia's greatest empresses to the founder of the city. The sculptor himself tried very hard to capture a likeness of Peter, so you might like to consider that when you look at the face. He wrote that, quote, I have endeavoured to give him such an expression as himself would have owned. So you're looking at certainly somebody's interpretation of Peter himself. And you might run into some newlyweds when you're there, because even today it's still a tradition that newlyweds come to this statue to have their photograph taken on their wedding day. A bit further up the palace embankment, you might pass a building called the Admiralty, a very imposing edifice built where there was originally a shipyard, again dating back to the time of Peter the Great. Think of 10,000 men being employed there in his day on the building of battleships, using all those skills he'd passed on that he'd learnt himself on his trips to Holland and London. But from about the 1840s, in fact, actual shipbuilding no longer happened there. That was moved downstream and the building became the Naval Engineering School, a role which I think it still fulfills today. Next to the Admiralty, you can't help but notice Palace Square, the massive square outside the back of the Hermitage, which has been the scene of so many great parades over the centuries. Whenever the Tsar led a parade, it would often start or end or both here. And bang in the middle, you will notice the Alexander Column, 
built to commemorate the victory over Napoleon, which of course took place during the reign of Alexander I. And the inscription on it reads, To Alexander from a grateful Russia. Palace Square, of course, also the scene of some momentous events in the 20th century, most of all the Bloody Sunday Massacre in 1905, when the Imperial Guard fired on unarmed demonstrators and caused outrage, and which led, 12 years later really, in 1917, to another attack on the Winter Palace, the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution. We'll be coming back to all these things in a later episode, but you might like to just ponder on them as you walk across the square. In the square, that's the best place to get a really good view of the back of the Winter Palace, known of course also as the Hermitage these days, which was the main residence of the imperial family. The version that you're looking at today dates from the 1750s. It was commissioned by the Empress Elizabeth, partly as just somewhere to put all her paintings. Her art collection was growing apace and she needed a building to put them in. Obviously, there have been lots of additions later by subsequent emperors and empresses, but for the original building, we have the Empress Elizabeth to thank. Today, of course, the main part of the building is the Hermitage Art Museum. But within that, when you buy your ticket and to go round, you can see the former Imperial State Rooms. I'll be coming back to the art collection here in a future episode. But in today's episode, I did want to just mention a little bit about the State Rooms and some of the Imperial Suites, which you can also see as part of your visit So probably one of the first things you'll notice, can't avoid, is the main staircase built, you guessed it, by the architect Rastrelli, which leads to two suites of state rooms. If I tell you that there are over a thousand rooms in this building and well over a hundred staircases, you'll be relieved to know that I don't intend to talk you through very many of them at all. I think it's one of those places where really you just need to wander and gawp and be amazed. But... Perhaps it is worth mentioning the Peter the Great Hall, which is dedicated, of course, to the memory of the founder of the city and which is decorated with things to big Peter up, things like a massive picture of him with Minerva and a whole lot of imperial symbols. Look around for crowns, double-headed eagles and paintings of his great battle victories, of course. Obviously, this is the place for a massive painting of his victory at Poltava when he beat, oh, who was it now? The Swedes. Yes, that victory of which he was so proud. Some of the other state rooms are, the guidebook tells us all, to glorify Mother Russia. So that's places like the Armorial Hall and the gallery. That's quite something. There are 332 portraits in there of all of those who held rank during the war against Napoleon. So again, Russia reminding us that they beat Napoleon. The paintings were all commissioned by Alexander I, and pride of place, of course, goes to a large painting of General Mikhail Kutuzov, who had led the Russian army in the days of Napoleon's retreat from Moscow. Definitely have a look round the large throne room, because that's the room where imperial processions used to start or finish, or sometimes both. But more interesting to me, really, I think, were some of the private rooms. So you can see where all the Russian rulers and their families from Catherine the Great right up to Nicholas II just before the Russian Revolution had lived. The rooms have wonderful titles like the Golden Drawing Room. You can imagine there's no shortage of gold and gilt in there. Crimson Study, the Boudoir, the Blue Bedroom, Emperor's Suites, all that sort of thing. Many, many more. And amongst all the splendour and pomp and gold and marble, It is, I found, the small things that you remember. So, for example, you can see the room 
where Nicholas I lived and worked. He's got his coat still hanging over the chair and there are clothes still in the wardrobe, which somehow makes it all the more real. You can see Alexander II's apartments, where we are told that the bed and the floor are stained with his blood because it was here that he died. And you can look at his desk, which there has a calendar on it, still showing the date of the last day that he lived, and his pens and ink pot and blotting pad and his photographs. You can go into the rooms that Tsar Nicholas II used, which of course are very poignant now when you think that he spent his last year or two here, unaware what was coming. You can see his billiard table, his piano, and I think the room that struck me most was the study. Lovely big wood panelled room with a staircase leading up to a book gallery that went all the way around three sides of the room. He seemed to be a man who collected lots of books. But he also had a lot of knickknacks, so Easter eggs, photographs of King George V, icons, all sorts of things. Sir William Martin Conway, who wrote about visiting this palace in a book published in 1925, summed up what I felt, I think, in the following words. It is scarcely possible to imagine a more striking contrast than that offered by the private rooms of the emperors and the stately halls into which they emerged, doubtless most unwillingly, on great occasions. There they could entertain a company which sometimes numbered 3,000 persons. Their own rooms would be overcrowded with a dozen visitors. Just as a flavour of the splendid occasions which took place here, I'm going to read a few bits from a book called The Russian Journal of Lady Londonderry, written in 1836 and 7, because she describes going to a ball in the Salle Blanche, or the White Hall, of the palace. She talks about how there were candles everywhere, what she describes as a whole perfect blaze of light. 3,000 candles, she thought. And just as she was feeling awe-inspired by that, the door opened and in walked the imperial family. She describes the empress, Alexandra Feodorovna, dressed in white, with single diamonds round her gown from her waist to her feet. She notes that the Empress was given to calling her diamonds Mekayu, which means my pebbles, and she writes that, quote, I never saw such a combination of simplicity and splendour. She goes on to describe the actual ball itself in the following words, quote, The ball began at nine. After the Polonaise were quadrilles, and at twelve o'clock we passed through a salle des maréchaux and a long gallery with between three and four hundred pictures of doors to the supper room, an enormous salle with scagliola columns and blue glass lustres, and lit by four thousand candles. This was really fairyland. The endless vistas, the quantities of messy plate, the abundance of lovely flowers, and to crown all, the whole having the appearance of an orangery, the supper tables being so constituted as to let the stems of the immense orange trees through, so that we literally sat under their shade and perfume. The scene was perfect enchantment, and 850 sat down to supper without the slightest confusion or squeeze. And just to finish off then, if you finally get out of the Winter Palace and continue your walk up the Neva Embankment, you will eventually come to the Summer Garden and the Summer Palace. The Summer Garden, in fact, is St Petersburg's oldest park, dates from the very early 18th century, so somewhere that Peter had designed, full of fountains and lovely little pathways, design really that he was having copied from what he'd seen on his visits to Western Europe. Originally it was for nobility only, but in the reign of Nicholas I it was opened up for, quote, respectably dressed members of the public. By the 19th century it had become a strolling place for leisured classes, and in the 20th century it was finally opened up to all us commoners. 
it became a tradition that the garden would be opened on Whit Monday so that lads and lasses, as they were called, could come here to meet each other. And we're left a lovely description of this from 1842, written by one T.G. Cole, and he talks about how people, quote, appeared to consist for the most part of shopkeepers and servants. They were dressed in a great deal of finery, badly put on, and a great many colours, ill-assorted. The young men were, on the whole, rather good-looking, but an uglier assemblage of young women it would be difficult to meet with anywhere, notwithstanding their painted faces and silk gowns. You may like to picture that as you wander around the gardens, or you may like to picture the fact that it was the setting for outdoor parties held by Peter the Great and his wife Catherine. I think in their day it was a bit more lavish than it actually appears now. There were stables and servants' quarters and what not. The actual palace itself, by the standards of what came later, is quite modest. A two-storey building, modelled on Dutch Baroque style, fountains, pavilions, sculptures... Inside you can see a chair that Peter actually used and his bed, so perhaps get a flavour of the man, feel a connection to the man himself. But it's definitely much, much simpler than, for example, his Peterhof Palace. On the other hand, if you contrast it with the cabin in which he spent six years of his life, it's quite a lot grander than that. He was moving up the scale, I think, with these things. The summer garden is, I think, a lovely place to end your walk. It's peaceful, it's tranquil, it's very pretty. And you can sit there and reflect on all the things you've seen on the palace embankment from St Isaac's Cathedral all the way up to the place where you're sitting now in the shade of those lovely trees. So, so much for that episode then. Just a quick word about next week's episode, which I'm going to feature the Alexander Palace. One of the palaces fewer people visit, I think, actually. It's out in Sarskozello near the Catherine Palace. But the reason I think it's worth an episode to itself is because it was the family home of the last of the Romanovs, so Nicholas II, Alexandra, and their five children. And there's a lot of material which I'd quite like to share with you on the lives that they led there before their terrible downfall. So, all of that for next week. For the moment, I'm just going to sign off by thanking you very much for listening. Spasibo. And wishing you goodbye, in Russian of course, as usual. Dos vidanya. <laughs>